Again, good morning officially to you. We've got uh, all kinds of folks here. We've got people from both coasts here today. We've got people from New York. We've got people from California. So, so welcome, welcome to that part of the family. Thank you for sticking around after a wedding to, to join us today. That's exciting um, to have people visiting. We've got other visitors, and I know uh, that's hard. Uh, it's, it's hard to visit new churches. I know one of my family's favorite things to do when I was a kid was uh, when we were gone on a Sunday, we would intentionally uh, go to church somewhere else. And anytime I'm ever on a mission trip, I always try to schedule it so we're there at least one Sunday so we can worship with whoever we're serving. Unfortunately, with Poland, we're not going to be able to do that because we get in on a Sunday, well, Monday morning, actually, and then we leave on a Sunday uh, afternoon or early about noon. So uh, I don't know, maybe an early service in Warsaw somewhere. I don't know. Might be able to figure out how to squeeze that in um, because it's just so much fun um, to worship. But I know it can be difficult to, to visit a new place and not know anybody that's there and all those kinds of things. So um, if you're watching online, same thing. You just somehow tuned in. You're like, who are these weird people? Um, who's that Don guy that the worship leader is talking to in the back of the room? Can't see him on the camera. So everybody's wondering, is this a real person or just mystery? We don't know. Um, let's go to, go to the Lord in prayer before we open his word this morning. Father God, what a blessing it is truly to be here um, in this country where we take so many things for granted. May we never, ever take meeting together with you and your family for granted. May we always cherish this moment where we make it a priority to be a part of, no matter what life is throwing at us, but to never forsake the gathering. Father, it is so important. You did not design us to do this life alone. You did not design the faith that we are to have to be alone. Father, we should be in faith in community, learning, growing, helping. Father, the entire New Testament is about these one another's. How could we possibly love one another if we try to live this faith alone? Father, be with us as we open your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We will be in Luke chapter 20 here in just a bit. We are nearing the end of Luke, and I'll share more about that with you next week. But I wanted to start with this today. A little boy wanted $100. He wanted $100 really, 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 really bad. He'd prayed for $100 for weeks and weeks and weeks, and nothing happened. He decided to write a letter to God. So he wrote a letter to God and requested this $100. When the postal folks found this letter, they thought it was pretty cute, so they decided to send it all the way up to the President of the United States. The President read the letter, and he was kind of amused, so he instructed one of his assistants to, to send this little boy a $5 bill. Now, the boy was delighted to receive the $5, so he sat down to wrote God a thank you note. The note read, Dear God, thank you very much for sending me the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you sent it through Washington, D.C., and the government deducted $95 in taxes. Today, we're going to talk about taxes. Okay, not really. Um, not really at all. Uh, this is a place of hope, um, so we're not going to do that, all right? Uh, this is where we come to be challenged by the words of the greatest teacher to ever walk this earth. Yes, his words could very easily make us uncomfortable. I would suggest that maybe they should make us uncomfortable. They should challenge us to grow, to change, to move, to act. If we just sit and read or we just sit and listen and there is no response, 
then are we not the man that James describes in the mirror of chapter 1, verse 22? Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. No, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and immediately after looking at himself forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Every time we read, every time we gather, every time we study, every time we pray, we have the opportunity to experience and see the heart of God, to literally open the mind of God, to experience his truth. And this is to be a life-changing, heart-forming, mind-renewing experience. This is not simply a classroom to learn in. His word is not simply a textbook to get facts from. No, no, no. This is a map for your life and for mine. This is a plan for you and for me to put into action. This is the story that God is still writing. He shares with us who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. We'll start that next week. And along the way, he proves how much he loves us. And then he gives us a chance to just respond to that love. So the question is, what would happen if you and I allowed these words of God to transform us, not, not just to guide us or direct us, but actually to transform us into who he desires us to be? As a youth pastor, when I would speak especially to the younger students, but I, I did the same thing with the junior and senior high, anytime we would read directly from the word of God, I insisted. I, I was kind of, I wasn't mean about it, but I was pretty firm. I insisted that they were quiet and that they focused on what was being read as if God himself was speaking to them. Little secret, because he is. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. But as I reflect, maybe I should have taken it a step further like I am today. If we listen out of reverence and respect for God, if we have a healthy fear of who God is, if we honor our master and our Lord, then we will not simply just listen because that's not good enough. We will then obey. Jesus himself said, if you are my true disciples, you will obey my commands. John 8, 31. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. John 14, 15. Church, are we his disciples? Do we truly love him? Are we willing to take the parables from the last few weeks? Please go back if you weren't with us and, and watch those. Listen to those. We, were we willing to take those parables the last few weeks to heart? I've said this time and time again. I probably will for a long time. He's given us all Amina. He's given us all the same thing when we come to him. What are we doing with it? How are we investing it to build his kingdom? Last week, he's given us a vineyard, a really nice vineyard. He's prepped us. He's given his word. He's given us opportunities. What are we doing with them? What are we producing for him? In his teachings today, it's a little bit of a shift in the script. Jesus isn't confronted by the religious leaders. This time, he's confronted by spies. Yes, there are spies in the Bible outside of the battle of Jericho and, and the Israelites and all of those kinds of things. He sends in these spies to try to trick Jesus. 
The religious leaders and scribes, they've given up themselves. No more questions from them, so they send the spies in on their behalf. They send them with a topic that was sure to make somebody in the room mad, hence the reason for the opening today. Taxes. Isn't it amazing that 2,000 years ago, I don't know what the Greek word is for taxes, I don't care. They hated the word as much as we do today. There's no difference in that word taxes. Verse 20 of chapter 20. Keeping a close watch on him, Jesus, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something that he said, so they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor, the Roman governor. So the spies questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Yeah, listen to them butter up Jesus. Oh, teacher, we know that you're awesome. You're probably the best teacher ever. Well, what you say is always right. It's, it's always true. You're so fair. We love you, Jesus. Come on. You're a bunch of frauds. You know Jesus was looking right through that. The, the religious leaders had tried to butter up Jesus before. It, it didn't work. No one's really ever buttered him up that much, at least not that's recorded. There was nothing sincere about this. These spies were paid actors, and they weren't very good at it. They were trying to get a rise out of the crowd that was there that day. They thought that this trick would work. That his answer would either get him in trouble with his people or with Rome. So they ask this meaningless, they add all this meaningless flattery to ask one simple question. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Again, Jesus' response, I can just see him kind of shaking his head with a half smile like taxes. Really? That's where you're going now? Okay, sure, guys. I got an answer for you. The strategy actually seemed pretty good. These were the options. The people hated paying taxes. Shocking, right? Many devout Jews thought that paying taxes to Rome was actually sinful, so they didn't really didn't like doing that. So if Jesus said, hey, everybody, I need you to pay your taxes because I said so, then people would have disliked Jesus because they thought he was just another sellout to the Romans. On the other hand, if Jesus said, hey, you know what, um, everybody, I need you to quit paying, paying taxes to those no good, blood-sucking, evil Romans, well, then Rome would obviously have a very legitimate excuse to take Jesus out. He would have been leading a rebellion at that point. From their perspective, they had Jesus pinned in a corner with no way out. He was going to make somebody mad when he answered this question. Verse 23, Jesus saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they reply. So he said to them, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's. And you know what? Give to God what's God's. Notice he didn't define what that is there. Verse 26, they were unable to trap him in what he said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. The end. Game over. Well played, Jesus. We're out. <laughs> the Romans are the ruling power. If you are using Roman currency, then guess who owns you? Rome. Very simple process. Jesus didn't give him anything hard to think about. However, he goes on to say, but give to God what belongs to God. So the glory, the honor, the praise that Rome did require of their Caesar, he's saying, no, 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 no. That belongs to God and God alone. Place your faith in God alone. He was teaching them something so very basic about their faith, quite simple even for them to understand. His enemies walk away defeated and impressed and amazed at his answer. And that, it says, was the last time the Pharisees, scribes, and elders tried to trap 
Jesus. There's one more group, the Sadducees, who will make one last attempt to try to trick Jesus with a question. We'll talk about that here in a couple weeks because their question has to do with the end times. And that's what we'll be spending the next three weeks on are Jesus' comments on the end times in the book of Luke. All of the leadership then has now been defeated. The Pharisees, chief priests, elders, and also the Sadducees in these next verses. They've all made an attempt In these final few days, this final week of Jesus' ministry, every one of them been turned away angry, humiliated, and quite honestly impressed because they've thrown everything they can at him and nothing seems to work. And so I can almost visually see this next moment in my mind's eye as he throws this back at them. They start to leave, and as they leave, he calls out to them one last time, and he turns the tables on them yet again by asking them a question, a very difficult question because it's about one of their greatest heroes of all time, King David. Verse 41, then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, chapter 110, if you're curious, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. David calls him Lord. Now, how then can he be his son? Now, depending on how long you've been in the church and what you know about Jesus, this question might not seem that hard to answer. Obviously, we know that Jesus is both David's son because he's a descendant of David, and he is David's Lord because he is the son of God. But for those listening in that moment, it wasn't that simple. And if you're new to the faith or you're exploring Jesus, you might be asking the question, uh, yeah, how could he be David's son, person, physical, and his Lord as well, when they didn't exist, quote unquote, at the same time? It's a great question. Is God, Jesus, merely a man or is he God in the flesh? You see, the problem is today, most of the world believes in Jesus, that he was simply a good man. He was wise, loving, caring, religious, well-intentioned, and on and on and on the description goes, but he was just a man and he lived and he died. The end. That line of thinking, that type of teaching, which, by the way, is found in many churches, it's a serious problem, is perfectly aligned with Satan's plan and his agenda for this world. Because if, of course, Jesus was merely a man, then he is not God, and he is not Savior, and the Bible is not true, and Christianity is just a lie, another false religion. However, (laughs) If Jesus is God, if he not only lived, but he died and rose again, then he is sovereign. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is in charge. The Bible is true. Christianity is genuine. And oh, by the way, he is the only way to heaven. One of those two is true. If the first is true, then this world and every one of our lives is completely and totally meaningless. There is no hope. There's no reason to exist or to love or to live at all. However, if Jesus is God's son, then the hope that is found in him cannot be crushed by anything this world will throw at us. As a matter of fact, the life that is found in him is more than worth living for the mere 80, 90, 100 years that we get to exist on this planet. That life will continue on into all of eternity in his presence. The love that can be experienced is so overwhelming that it cannot help but share it with others. We cannot contain it if we truly believe it. So the question that Jesus asked here is more than relevant. 
In fact, the answer to this question is an essential part of our faith. And you and I got to understand it. We have to have a firm grasp on this so that we can share it with other people. Here is where we must start in our context. The, the, the target of all false religions, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the target of all false religions will always be the person of Jesus. They will all deny that Jesus is God, every one of them. Anyone or any faith that denies or alters the deity of Jesus in any way is not Christianity, no matter what they claim to believe besides that. And this was the problem of the Jews of the day. They believed that the Messiah that would come was to be a man, not God. That he would be a man that would come as a ruler through the line of David, that he would reestablish the kingdom of God, that he would subject all of Israel's enemies to them once again and would rule on high from Jerusalem. This would then fulfill all of God's promises to Abraham and to David. The Messiah, not God, not Son of God, not Savior of sinners. He was just to be a man that delivered them from their enemies. Now do you see the depth of Jesus' question to the people? He went right to the heart of absolutely who he truly is. Matthew records the same scene in chapter 22, verse 41, but a little more detail. Verse 42 actually is where we'll start. Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Their response to whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David, they replied. Now, here's the thing. The leaders were completely right. Their answer was not wrong. Jesus was from the line of David, born by blood through Mary's line of David and by lineage through Joseph's line back to David. There are many ways to test this to make sure that it's true. But probably the greatest was simply this fact that no one ever challenged Jesus as to whether or not he was from the line of David. None of the religious leaders ever questioned that this man, Jesus, was from the line of David. The family documents for the Jews at that time were very well preserved. They were all lost when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed in AD 70, in case you ever wondered. But they were very well preserved then. They could have easily done the research and they could have proved that Jesus was not the son of David. Someone probably could have made a lot of money doing that research and finding that little piece of information, but they never found it because it wasn't there. He was absolutely from the line of David and no one questioned that. The phrase son of David is used at least 17 times in the gospels and Jesus never once corrects the people that are calling him that. He agrees, yes, I am absolutely the son of David, but there's more to the story than just that. Verse 43, he said to them, Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, that's a key, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? He, replied, he goes on to write, the author does, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. See, here's the really cool thing about the question Jesus asked. In spite of all that he'd been through, all of their hatred, all of their criticisms, their plan to have him killed in just a couple days, Jesus' challenge here is actually one last final evangelistic effort, one final try to get those leaders to believe that he is, in fact, the Messiah. 
that he is the son of God. Jesus in these final questionings and this final confrontation is still a compassionate evangelist. He's still trying to reach them, inviting sinners headed in the wrong direction to know him for who he truly is, to stop their open rejection, to get rid of their indecision. He's inviting them to have, to make a decision, to have faith in who he genuinely, truly is. This invitation is a fundamental question of all of Christianity. What is the nature of Christ? Who is Jesus? Just another man or God in the flesh? And here's the thing, folks, it matters. There's only one answer that's correct. Jesus is quoting David's words from Psalm 110, verse 1. And a majority of the Jewish people and all of the Jewish leaders absolutely knew this passage. And they knew that the interpretation of these words indicate that David was speaking about the coming Messiah. He will be the one who sits at the right hand of God. He will be the one that holds this position of authority and power. He will be the one that makes God's enemies a footstool under their feet once again. He is a conquering hero. He is to be the eternal God who becomes man. So how then, if this is the description of the Messiah, can he also be David's physical son, his blood son? Now, what you don't know probably about this question is it actually messed the religious leaders up big time because the correct answer really messed with their theology. They didn't just leave the conversation stunned and afraid to ask questions. They actually had to reinterpret this passage from the Old Testament They had to figure out a way for it not to be pertaining to the Messiah any longer. So they changed the interpretation so that maybe it referred to Abraham or maybe David or maybe, if you've heard of him, Judas Maccabeus, leader of the Maccabean revolt between in the intertestament periods between Malachi and Matthew. They had to change the meaning of the text so that it didn't refer to the Messiah anymore. Because if it did, it meant that the Messiah would be both David's son, a person, a man, and God's line as well. This was a huge importance to their faith. Now, for me personally, doesn't it seem like it would have been easier at this point to just believe that Jesus was the Messiah rather than trying to alter your entire faith to figure out how to fit him in if he isn't really who he says he is? You see, David referred to the Messiah as both his son and Lord in the present tense. Some to this day still insist that David was just having a moment when he wrote that, that something was wrong. He was wrong. He was crazy. Something was happening. And here's what I can tell you. Yes, something was happening. Both Matthew and Mark recorded this. I pointed it out to you moments ago. Mark says it this way. Chapter 12, verse 36, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared the very Spirit of God inspired his words. David couldn't understand. David couldn't know how this would happen. The Spirit of God led him to pin these words for everyone. He was not wrong. David was speaking the absolute truth from the mouth of God himself. Now, some might say, Pastor, that was an awful short little section. Why did we just spend so much time on it? Is it really that important? Yes. Yes, it is. Church, if you claim to believe, you must know what you believe. It's essential. 
If you do not fully believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that he was fully God, that he was fully man, that he came to this earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, sacrificed that perfect, sinless life for your sins and for mine, then he rose again on the third day, and he will return If you do not believe all of that, then whatever your faith has been to this point, it has not been in the one true God. And I hate to tell you that, but it's truth. Now, I didn't say we couldn't have questions. I didn't say we would have all of the answers even, or that we'd be able to perfectly understand it in this life. I don't think we ever will. But but we must believe it to be true. Let God allow you to comprehend it. Let God answer your questions through his text, through other people, through divine revelation. Yes, he still does that. Your role and mine is to believe. And if we don't, then unfortunately, he'll have nothing to do with us. He's already done his part. The invitation stands fully open to all who will believe until he returns. We must only have faith and believe to enter into that eternal relationship with him. Why do we spend so much time? It's very simple. If you and I don't know what we believe, how can we possibly share it with someone else? And if we share what we don't really fully believe with someone else, why would they listen? I wouldn't blame them. That's why it's so important. Let's finish with these two short, simple teachings. Very little explanation needed, but we must cover the full counsel as we go through this book of Luke together. It seems this was probably on the heels of everything that's just happened. Jesus' really tough questions really sent them away in a a tizzy this time. So verse 45, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, (laughs) see all those people leaving? Yeah, beware of them. Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, loves to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and they show, for a show, make great lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. I don't think there's much to comment on here. It's pretty self-explanatory. He's exposing these esteemed teachers of the law. They love to draw attention to themselves. They love being seen as really important people. But behind the scenes, they're all show. And in reality, they're not even upholding one of their first and most important duties, that of taking care of widows. We'll learn that in these next few verses here in just one second. I believe it would be fair to also interpret these forward into today's time as a warning to future teachers and leaders within the faith. Don't do that. Don't pursue that lifestyle and try to make yourself out to be something you're not, this great religious teacher better than other people. Because if you do, the punishment will be most severe. Most of you have been around long enough to see that play out in modern America with church leaders, both famous and infamous, being exposed for who they truly are. Things don't ever change, do they? The final words for today come from the very beginning of Luke 21, just four short Verses. One last comparison for the crowd that had gathered that day. This was not just an example for the leaders or for the wealthy, but for those that were poor as well. Verse 1 of chapter 21. It says, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He was teaching all of this from the temple courts. 
He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and put all that she had to live on. Now, a lot of people have used this as an example for giving. Not completely wrong, but that's not the point that Jesus is trying to make. This story comes just after Jesus just said that the religious leaders are devouring the houses of the widows. And now we have a widow with nothing. We find one widow that, that, that has given all that she has left. Do you see the connection? Why does this widow only have this to live on? Have you ever thought about that? Who's supposed to be taking care of her? These very religious leaders who are devouring their houses. She has nothing because of them. And Jesus is just further exposing their corruption. They should be taking care of her. Now, sure, they're throwing their money in the plate, but it doesn't seem to be going back out to meet the very needs that it was given for. Take it further. The rich. Now, I must tell you very quickly, that word rich here, we view that one way. The word rich that is used here is simply the word that means the people that had enough, not people that had a whole bunch. So keep that in mind. People that had enough. The widow did not have enough. They made their donation to the temple, but as soon as they'd done that, what should they have done? Well, they should have helped this poor widow out of their abundance if they only had eyes to see and a heart to help those poor people around them. Do you see the disconnect? Now, was the widow showing extraordinary faith? Yes, yes, absolutely she was. A faith that we would all do well to pursue for ourselves. But honestly, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story was to continue to expose those religious leaders for what was really going on. These people that were continuously trying to discredit Jesus, trying to twist his words, trying to question his motive and his lifestyle. The leaders were pretending to be righteous while abusing and misusing the funds of those that were given to do the very work that God had commanded, like Ose, taking care of the widows. They were neglecting their responsibilities. They were ignoring God's law and all the while trying to get rid of the very Messiah who sat before them teaching. I think Jesus' message to us from this would be very, very simple. Uh, Don't do that. (laughs) Don't go there. Don't be like that. As an individual, as a church, we got to strive to use the gifts that God has given us for his glory and not for our own The more that we pour into his work, the more that we strive for excellence as we represent Jesus. And that is so important. We cannot do things halfway for Jesus or else we're not doing them for Jesus. We're doing them for ourselves. We have to give everything we have for him. The more we present him in that way, the more we express his love to those around us in our community, the more people will be attracted to him. When, we, when people see you and they see me fully devoted to our God, they're going to take notice. They're going to wonder what's wrong with you. See, our God is alive. And he is bringing hope to this community through each and every one of you. And he's bringing hope to this community through this church that has gathered here at Berea. Our job is to allow his spirit to guide us down this path. We have to trust him. We have to trust him with all that we have, with everything that he has given us. When Jesus answered the spies at the very beginning of today, there were two parts to his answer. The second part, he told them, oh, and give back to God what's God's. 
So I want to end by asking you a very simple question. In your mind, answer this question. What is God's? Now, I don't know the first thing that just popped into your mind, but there's only one correct answer. Everything. If your answer in your mind to the question, what is God's, was anything else, you don't truly know God yet. And I want to challenge you today to get to know him in that way. Father God, your word is powerful. You tell us it will never return void. Father, may we all come to unity, unity of mind, of heart, and of spirit in who you are. Father, may we all believe that you are truly God's son, that the mission that you chose to come for before the creation of this world, you agreed to come and be our savior as well as our Lord. Father, if there's anyone here today that doubts that, Father, will they please bring those doubts to you. Their, their doubts are not too much for you to handle. You have the answer for them. That answer may be a conversation with someone right here in this very room that helps them grow through this doubt. Father, those that have questions, would you please please allow your spirit to inspire them to ask those questions. Don't keep those to themselves any longer. Father, Satan can use those things to pull us away from you. Father, we ask that your spirit not ever allow that to happen. Fathers, we contemplate what you've called each and every one of us to do in your kingdom. Those of us that have come to claim you as our Lord and Savior. Father, you have a role for all of us. You have works for us to do. You've prepared these good works in advance. They're waiting on each and every one of us right now. We must just answer the call and go do it. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to see those in need around us, to see the needs here, even within this very church. Father, to see the opportunities that we can serve, the opportunities that we can grow, it's so easy to look at these things. You know what? Someone else will do that. Someone else will take care of that need. Someone else is more qualified than me, has more time than me. Fill in the excuse that we could throw in. But Father, you're calling me. And you're calling each and every one of us to love you even greater. To desire a closer relationship with you each and every day. And to serve you in ways that maybe we've never even dreamed of before. people be sensitive to that still small voice of your spirit speaking within us to how you would have us act, how you would have us respond to this invitation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.